0: If you or someone you care for has experienced sexual violence and you want to reach out, you can call St. Joseph's at 519 646 6100, extension 64224. They can connect you there. Welcome to the Doc Talks Podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. The numbers are distressing. In 2018, Statistics Canada reported 11.5% of London residents aged 15 and older were victims of a self-reported physical or sexual assault, twice as high as the rest of Ontario at 4.6%. Sexual assault is a crime of violence, one that often leaves victims that require various types of medical care and support to help them heal and recover. Today we're going to discuss this topic and the services available to victims and their caregivers with Dr. Susan McNair, a family physician and the medical director of the Regional Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence Treatment Centre at St. Joseph's Healthcare London. Dr. McNair, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I always say this to every audience, this is a difficult topic to talk about for everyone listening. We know that there's a significant number of people in the audience that will listen to this today, that will have a history of their own sexual assault or domestic violence, and that... Talking about this can be very difficult, right? So it's understandable if some people can't listen to it or can listen to it and leave and come back and hear the rest of it. But it can be triggering for many people to talk about these topics. But it also may be opening the door for people to realize that there's a service they can come to for help if they're listening to this as well. So I think that's kind of an important uh, thing for the audience in, in this particular podcast to understand right Right at the beginning.
0: And just before we get going, Dr. McNair, I should point out, I apologize for my voice if I may cough or sniffle because I'm dealing with a bit of a a bad cold. So let's start with that statistic. 11.5% of London residents reported in 2018, Statistics Canada, reporting that they were the victim of physical or sexual assault. Now, I assume, I understand, I think, that many sexual assaults simply go unreported. So can you give us a sense of what the right number might be, or the the sort of percentage of sexual assaults that aren't
1: reported? Yes, I think that's, you know, an underreported number. Certainly vast number do go unreported. The number of people coming forward and reporting, certainly to the police, is, is believed to be quite low. If you look at the literature around women who report a history of having sexual assault at any point in their lives, in general, we think of the numbers as being roughly one in four women will report that. So, you know, we're talking about a higher number than that number that you stated there, but generally between one and three and one and four. So what I usually do when I lecture on this topic is I, I don't get too hung up on every study that reports the numbers, but I throw that number out and say, let's just agree that this is a common uh, entity. Right,
0: right. I, I sometimes think that, our hope that our societal awareness of sexual assault and its consequences is increasing and we're getting more sensitive in, uh, of this. Is that true? Are these numbers rising? Are we regressing? What's... You know, I, I don't, I don't suppose
1: that. we really totally understand that, except to say that, you know, podcasts like today are great because they're getting out there, this message, they're talking about this topic, and hopefully people who may be victims have then a knowledge of where they might come forward. I do think that people, because they become aware of these services, are more apt to come forward because of that. So, you know, whether the numbers are going up because it's any more common, I'm I'm suspicious that's not the case. I think the power differentials that are inherent in, in sexual assault and domestic violence are historically and long been present, but I think finally, we're really talking about it. We're acknowledging that it's a crime of power and control, sexual assault, for instance, not, you know, sex may be the tool, but it's a crime of power and control, and that women can come forward and get help. You know, you mentioned about men and men as well. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want it to be lost today that men don't suffer, certainly in the pediatric population. We, you know, not infrequently see little boys and we see men as well who are suffering. The vast majority are women that we see, adult women, but we do see men who are in relationships where they've been injured as well.
0: Absolutely. We should emphasize again what you've just said. It's a crime of violence. It's about power. It's about control. And also, correct me if I'm wrong, again, the majority of sexual assaults are committed by men against women and often or usually by not a stranger, but Someone that they
1: know, correct? That's exactly right. That, and that's not only, you know, you read about that in the literature, but that would be our experience as well within the sexual assault program, that, you know, the majority of them are men that they're familiar with. Not necessarily that they've had long, long-term relationships, but that they've come to know and have been violated in that way.
0: All right. And can we talk just briefly, I mean, the effects of a sexual assault on a victim? It's physical, it's mental. Can, can you talk a little bit about sometimes the the consequences of, of the crime?
1: You know, I think that some implications, certainly for when sexual violence happens, you know, We know that children who are victims of sexual violence, other forms of physical abuse can have certainly lifelong implications of a psychiatric nature, of a medical nature, etc. The same for adults. We see women who come to us and resiliency is an interesting thing and probably an entire podcast. Some will do quite well and move on and others will suffer tremendously and it will be really then lifelong suffering that they do in terms of not only their mental anguish, some of them their physical anguish because of trauma that they, physical trauma that they've received, and others it will have a substantial impact on their relations at home with their, with their spouse, with the future doctors and nurses that they see, you know, that that trauma really stays with them and it makes it difficult for them to have sometimes invasive medical procedures that we put people through within our offices and within the healthcare system.
0: And then slightly more specifically some of these consequences
1: as in the adult victims who come to us i frequently get asked to see by our social worker by the nurses to see women who are suffering with symptoms of anxiety anxiety is a huge component after this and depression sometimes we'll see young women whose anxiety is long standing you know they'll be assaulted in first year university or a college and you know we follow them you know throughout the course of their their university until perhaps they leave london and during that time they will require really intense intervention by by the social worker, I will end up putting them on medications to help to try and control the anxiety. And they describe some really pretty horrendous experiences. You know, I can think several women have told me that they're so anxious that they'll sleep on the floor of one of their girlfriend's dorm rooms because they're afraid to stay alone. It has a really profound impact. Some of them will find themselves, you know, having to leave school, not able to finish the year, and their lives are really very much upended by it.
0: You mentioned, obviously, younger women often victimized. Is that one reason why the stats are so high for London? Is it because of the presence of we have a college and a university and a large student population
1: when you said that statistic that's one of the first things that i thought about in terms of why there's this differential in in london itself you know i think being a university city and a college city we no doubt have more reported cases you know i don't know whether london overall the number of people being assaulted is higher it may be because of that but we also may be reaching the university and college students more and encouraging them to come forward probably a combination
0: so let's walk through then the process. If a woman has been the victim of a of sexual violence, and I, I suppose the first question is how do they, for instance, get in contact with the Regional Sexual Assault and Treatment Centre? Is that a simple phone call? or?
1: So the point of entry into the program is really very varied. Some women will come in themselves, so they'll know that there's a program at St. Joe's, they'll come to the urgent care, and then the urgent care will triage them immediately over to our program when they come in the door. Others will will get a call from one of the emergency rooms where they've gone in either London or the region because we're a regional program. So we look after patients as far away as from Godridge, Strathroy, Tilsonburg, Stratford. I mean, there's many, many emerges. So we may get called from there. They may be in hospital patients who are. In a pediatric ward or in a psychiatry ward or in a medicine ward where there's been a suspicion raised and we'll get called. We may get a call from a high school principal, from a parent themselves, essentially Anybody can come to us, you know, male, female, non-gender conforming identity of any age and can come to us through any route at all. So sometimes they come to us not because they were aware that this program is St. Joe's, but let's say the high school principal was aware or their parent is aware and they'll, they'll get in contact us in that route. We are very blessed in the program to have an in-house nurse present 24 hours a day, sometimes two nurses, sometimes one nurse, but there's always someone there. So it doesn't matter if they are arrive at you know the middle of the night or during the afternoon or the call comes in, the calls come in at any hour, there will always be somebody there to call back to, to that individual or the individual calling for them. So their triage, we're, we're again fortunate that we have a, a nice unit and it has a waiting area, locked doors then into the kind of more formal examining area and hallways for safety reasons, of course and we then perform those examinations and those interviews in one of the formal examination rooms. So they're met by a wonderful group of sexual assault nurse examiners who are trained in trauma-informed care and trained in the principles of uh, medicine and forensic care. And they are really, when I say they're wonderful, they are. They're They're really a beautiful group of women who offer this care. And they will be then interviewed and they'll ask questions about what's happened to them and give them their options in terms of what their care can be. You know, what we center on is the medical needs, the forensic needs, and the psychological needs. So those are really the areas of need. And the the options for care are really to simply come in and be given care for any of those needs that are necessary without any kind of forensic collection of evidence and police involvement. That's the first option. The second option, of course, is then to have the forensic evidence collected as well and it can be stored and it doesn't have to be given to the police right away. And that's been new in the last several years is that we used to kind of women were forced to make a decision when they came in about whether or not they wanted to kind of get the police involved. Now we're really lucky that the kit can be stored for up to a year while a woman makes a decision about whether or not she wants to involve the police and put that forward for forensic analysis. And then the third option then is to accept the care, the forensic collection, and pass that over to the police that particular night or within the day or two after that.
0: Is it ever too late to disclose an incident of sexual violence?
1: The only disadvantage of disclosing later is in the forensic collection piece that there may be things may be too late to collect. Oh, you know, if somebody bit someone on the breast, and we normally, if we saw them quickly, would have collected a swab over that and hopes of in hopes of finding amylase, which is you know a chemical in in saliva, a protein in saliva, then you know we might not be able to do that a week, ten days later, if she has if she has bathed five times, right? The usefulness of that would be limited, but it doesn't stop our ability to disclose to to record the history itself and and potentially if there were late, if there were any bruises that were still remaining so so you know i don't think and it, mostly it doesn't stop the ability to support her through this right whether she decides to involve have forensic collection or or can have it, or whether she decides to report it to police or not, what it can do is provide her with perhaps the most important thing, which is the support around it, the the mental and physical support. And the other issue is when it's, it involves a sexual assault that's been, you know, through three or four weeks ago, it allows us to do, you know, maybe we can't, it's too late to offer HIV prophylaxis, but it's not too late for us to test for sexually transmitted infections and treat if, if she has something. So... You know, I usually say it's never really, it's never too late to report and to seek help.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit about forensics? What does that involve?
1: Right. So, clinical forensic medicine is really done with live patients, and forensics is really the interplay between medicine and the law, is what it is. So that's the best way to put it. So it's the interplay or the interface between medicine and the law. So it's the collection of evidence that may have a powerful role to play in the medical legal sequelae of these of these particular cases. So it's the information that that I would take forward or a nurse would take forward with her to the courtroom and 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 offer to a judge or to a jury when determining the guilt or innocence of a potential, you know, perpetrator. Excellent. And that involves everything from what we see with our naked eye, so the bruises, the abrasions, the lacerations, through to, you know, oral swabs, looking for uh, semen, sperm in the mouth, through to genital and and vaginal swabs, through to looking for, you know, one of the first things we do when we collect the forensic evidence is a woman, we we put out a drop sheet on the floor, which is like a two-layered London Free Press. That's what I always call it. And it's, it has two layers and she, you know, can imagine what a difficult task this is for any woman, but she removes her clothing standing over that drop sheet. Every item of clothing is dropped into a bag and labeled and timed and it's kind of an elaborate process because of the chain of evidence. And then any small little bits of fiber or anything that may have fallen onto the drop sheet, onto the top layer, it's folded up and that drop sheet is submitted for forensics. So, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about trace evidence. So we're looking for bits of grass that might have fallen out if she was assaulted on the ground. We're looking for little bits of fiber that might have come from a perpetrator's sweater. We're looking for little bits of dried blood that might have fallen off, you know, a perpetrator. We're looking for anything that might have that might have fallen onto the gr- onto the ground. And those, again, that central forensic question, do they corroborate the history? So if she says, I went outside the parking lot, such and such a parking lot, and he pushed me to the ground and assaulted me on the grass, it's, it's powerful then to find little bits of grass that have fallen out of her clothing onto the, onto the drop sheet. So, so that, that's just one element of, of really a complex process of forensic collection.
0: Right. And so does the, the center offer ongoing support? I mean, how, how long does someone remain being treated or, or involved with the center?
1: So yes, we do. We offer ongoing support of, of kind of all of those areas. So ongoing support for the psychological needs. So referral to our social worker who then will see them for anywhere from, if they require one visit or if they require visit that goes on over many months or even years, the social workers Mm. are available to them. Medical needs then, of course, we prophylax them for pregnancy, meaning we try to avoid them getting pregnant, Mm. hepatitis B, HIV, et cetera. And the HIV therapy, for instance, is a a month-long therapy. So we follow them during the course of that month closely for any developing symptoms, et cetera, that they may get. And then we even provide forensic follow-up because we see them at 48 hours, because sometimes we see late developing injuries. So if someone is dragged up the stairs by their neck, you know, and we see them within a few hours, a couple of hours after that, uh, when we first see them, there may be nothing but some red dots on their neck. But at the 48-hour mark, those areas of blunt force trauma where those fingers have kind of held onto the neck may have caused some little vessels to break and we may find that 48 hours later we see evidence of bruises. And that's important to see because the forensic question that we're trying to answer in the forensic analysis of these cases is do the findings corroborate the history? So that's the that's kind of the overarching forensic question that we're asked in the court system is do the injuries corroborate the history that we've been given? So that's important those 48 hour visits because sometimes we'll see that and, you know evidence of you know if you see four little bruises on each side of the front of the neck and two on the back where the hand where the fingers have imprinted into the neck that's powerful evidence in terms of corroborating the story and we have the option of taking pictures of injuries as well so that's part of the forensic collection if somebody's comfortable with that and if we feel that they would be powerful in terms of future litigation so so that's kind of the follow-up piece. The collection of evidence itself is a is a long process. It takes anywhere from about 3 to 4 hours, sometimes 5 hours, depending on how many injuries there are. So we will, you know, do a head to toe physical. We've obviously done a history around their medical needs and around the assault so we can hear the mechanism, potential mechanism of injuries, but then we do a head to toe examination looking then for Predominantly, in these cases, we see blunt force trauma, which which is defined really as bruises, abrasions, and lacerations. So we're looking for that evidence on the body. Again, reflecting on that kind of overarching question around, do the physical findings corroborate the history? But keep in mind that, you know, the majority of women who come to us with a history of sexual assault don't have injuries, right? Sometimes the court system tries to imply that, uh, well, if there aren't any injuries, you know, I don't think it really happened. But that's a myth that we're very much trying to break that kind of thinking.
0: That's an interesting word there. Are there other prevalent myths or misconceptions that we still have about sexual violence?
1: Well, I think that, you know, we all have to search ourselves, and it's one of the things I encourage with medical students and with residents is that we need to think about our own myths that we hold to be true about sexual Mm -hmm. assault, and I think everybody has them. You know, I think that is related very closely to this concept of kind of blaming victims, and I think it's important because... You know, the number one factor associated with kind of poor coping in the long term is self-blame and people feeling Mm. like they were somehow responsible for it. And I think that that's terribly important that we be careful around that. You know, that our belief that when we hear somebody tell us that, you know, they were drinking too much and they walked through Victoria Park Mm -hmm. and they were scantily clad that, you know, do we have this myth in our minds that, well, you know, that that was a silly thing to do, you know. And I think, you know, the reality is that a woman should be able to to walk anywhere scantily clad after a drink and not be raped. And I think we have to uh, be very careful about the way that we ask questions and how those myths play out in the one-on-one encounter with patients. So it's very important and when I ask victims of these crimes what was the most helpful thing that somebody said to them or what was the most unhelpful Mm -hmm. thing that someone said to them in the aftermath of this, You know, the most unhelpful thing is often a comment that came from someone who implied that somehow that was a really stupid decision they made, that they shouldn't have gone on an online date, you know, for instance, or they shouldn't have chosen to go out with so-and-so. That then morphs itself into this kind of self-blame and that, well, somehow, maybe I don't even deserve going in for care because I made a stupid decision. So very, very important that we have a check on those myths that we hold to be true and we don't play them out in our encounter with patients.
0: So maybe just enlarging that briefly, I mean, we've talked about how so many cases the victim feels somehow to blame. They, they knew the, the perpetrator. I, I imagine that oftentimes the victim, one of the first people that they turn to is a friend, correct? Right. What should a, a friend or an acquaintance of someone who's come to them and said, I was sexually assaulted last night, last week? How how should they react? What what sort of steps should they take?
1: That's a great question because you're right. That is the case. You know, of the of the students we see, the vast majority come in with a girlfriend. There's no doubt about it. They've told right. the girlfriend mm-hmm. about it, and the girlfriend has said, "Well, I'll come with you to St. Joe's, or I'll I'll be with you when you right. call the police, or I'll t- be with you when we go to emerge." And then they come to us. So really, the, in the student's case, that's the vast majority. And. You know, I think that this holds true whether it's a friend or whether it's a mother or father or so or a teacher that that a student mm-hmm. discloses to. I think it's really to listen. I think it's to just immediately right. acknowledge how painful this is for them, that this is a crime that's happened to them, that they were, you know, a victim of something that was absolutely wrong, that they're not responsible for it and that they're going to be present with them while they seek out the professional help that they need. And I think that's what what victims need. They don't need a lot of opinion, any opinion really, in the early Mm -hmm. stages about whether or not a decision that they made led to this. I think simply being present with them and telling them that they'll stick with them through the duration of this is really important. And we see some parents bring their children in who really do a marvelous job of that. And our social worker will also involve the parents if, that, if, the, if the adolescent or young adult or anyone really wants that or a spouse or a partner, the social worker will see those individuals either alone or along with the victim themselves. So as you can imagine, these events can have a major impact on relations at home, on the capacity of people to communicate with their spouse or to effectively mother. And I think that sometimes a friend or a partner or a parent needs support as well.
0: We talked about the, the, the role of friends and so forth. What, what should someone say to a victim of sexual violence that will give them hope?
1: yeah i I really like that question because it's really, really important and you know i I lecture the second year medical students, and I always talk about that in the lecture about the importance of hope, not just in these cases but in general as physicians. you know sometimes that's all we can do is offer to patients a sense mm. of hopefulness and I think in these cases of sexual assault, I talk to every woman about hopefulness in that acute setting, and I talk to her, and I say to her explicitly i say You know, I know and I can sense from hearing you today that this has been a horrible, horrible experience for you. And it feels like it's kind of the end of the world right now for you after this has happened to you. And I, you know, I say to them that I do hold out hope based on my experience of looking after other people. I will say to her, will this change your life? And I say, yes, it will change your life. Will it impact the rest of your life? Yes, it will to varying degrees. But I always say, but it doesn't need to ruin your life. That's Mm. kind of the way I coach it, that it may impact your life, but it doesn't need to ruin your life. And one of the ways that we can try to make sure that that's the case is that you're here today, and that we're gonna give you help, and we're gonna help you right now in the acute phase, we're gonna help you tomorrow, we're gonna be here from you weeks from now, or months from now, or years from now if necessary, and we'll work with you to make sure that you get back to some sense of a new normal, a normal that might be different than it was before, but that you will get back to having meaning in your job, as a student, in your relationships, and I think key here is to say to them that you will once again feel happy at some point in time, And although this may be difficult for you to believe right now, you're going to hear me say that to you often as we work through this, because I really believe, based on my experience, that you will again have a life that brings you joy down the road at some point in time. And, you know, I think that's pivotal, right? We have to give people hope because... You know, in some of these cases, it really does feel like the end of their lives. And it's not, it's not unusual for people to have a lot of suicidal thoughts or even suicidal attempts after sexual assault. So, so very important, I think, to give hope as medical professions in all cases, but in cases of sexual assault, for sure. Do
0: you have any advice for how parents should or can talk about this and protect their children uh, when it comes to sexual violence and domestic assault?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the one area, of course, that I think we can protect them is with the potential for online issues, right? So mm. being aware of what your children are online doing, you know, are they do they have access to Snapchat at a really early age? You know, what are they looking at online? You know, I think the other piece is just, you know, with young girls, as you're raising them, to talk to them about high risk situations. You know, I'm always saying to my daughter, don't get out of your car and walk long distances in the dark, you know, go with a friend if you're going somewhere, tell someone if you're leaving a home and you're going to, you know, be arriving at their place. So if you don't arrive, they can text you and ask you where you are. It sounds like common sense, but I think we need to be purposeful, I think, in raising daughters around those issues of kind of safety and nighttime and going out alone and making sure people know where you're going. And then You know, the issue of online dating, of course, has risks associated with it. We see not a tiny number of people who are victims of sexual assault after meeting people online, right, that they don't know a lot about. So just being cautious about that. If they're going to do online dating, that they know that they've told a friend that they're going on this date and that they're going to check in with them through the night and and text them and just see that everything's okay. Right.
0: There's been a lot of stories about police involvement and the, and the police attitudes have changed that are working more closely with groups like yourself.
1: Yes, I, you know, I'm a great supporter of the police and the hard work that sure. they do. And I think that there are changing attitudes for all of us, hopefully medical professionals for police as well and I know that our program is playing a big role right now in terms of education with the police at the police college and Mm -hmm. and uh, you know now the London City Police and the police college are all you know including curriculum around this topic so she goes regularly with the new recruits here in London and talks to them and goes over all of these principles and the importance of what they say during their first encounters with patients and how they interact with them so you know hats off I think to certainly to London Police services for kind of in doing that. I give fairly regular talks with the detectives of the sex crimes unit and there's a lot of relationship building that's gone on between ourselves and the police and I think we're kind of all growing in this together.
0: How long have you been working in this field now?
1: Well, I'd have to give away my age pretty nearly, wouldn't I? But no, I'm just kidding. The program first was funded in 1991. So we became one of the regional centers in the province at that time. And it's interesting that just before that, really, there was no structured program at St. Joe's. And some wise administrators at St. Joe's at the time said, listen, we're getting, and I think it was the eMERGE docs who noticed we're getting women in and we're not quite sure what to do with them. And that's how I really got involved. So that's when we were able to apply for funding to become uh, one of the regional uh, sexual assault and domestic violence treatment centres. There's out of interest, there's 36 centres now in the province and they extend as far up as Thunder Bay, right down to Windsor. And we are also one of the five pediatric sexual assault treatment centers in the in the province. So we cover a large catchment area for pediatric cases. And for some reason recently, you've just hit me on the perhaps the right day or the wrong day, but we've had a huge number of, of pediatric cases recently for some reason, and none of us kind of know why. But that would be the area of our program, I think, that's really building more and more is the pediatric side of it. And I, I think it just may be more and more knowledge about us. And uh, we've got a really good relationship with physicians over at the London Health Sciences Center who children may come there and be sent over for the the pediatric sexual assault piece to us at St. Joe's or we go there. Wow.
0: It's sort of a personal question. I mean, it's such a dark, possibly depressing topic. And yet you strike me as someone who is, I mean, I I guess my question is going to be, how do you or do you remain optimistic? How do you Mm. day after day keep fighting this battle?
1: You know there's a term we use vicarious trauma, which is of course the trauma to the caregivers who are doing this work and I think there is no doubt that it's difficult work i mean it it is at times i mean particularly for me, the pediatric cases I find very challenging, and I find the elderly patients who were assaulted it it I find those two age areas really I find all of them challenging, but I find the those areas difficult. We are lucky in that we're a tight group, so there are only five physicians involved in this, myself, Buma Bayana. Elaine Thurgood, Michelle Fleming, and Sadia John. So, the five of us are the f- five physicians involved, and we take call for kind of a week at a time in this work. And then we have this group of wonderful full time, part time, and casual nurses. And so, we really support one another, and we talk about these difficult cases and we talk through them, which is, I think, very, very helpful. You know, for me, the danger of it after all these years, I think, is that we, you know, you start to see the world through this lens of this kind of risk, yeah. right? And if I if I had to say any personal way that it's probably impacted me, it's been in the way that I mother, right? I I've raised two daughters and for good or bad, they've had me as their mother around this topic, right? Because <laughs> you, you start to see the world as kind of a very big risk for your children, in particular your daughters, yes. and you raise them with a sense of kind of be careful, you know, every every yes. environment you get into has risk involved. And I think it's been good. But on the other hand, you have to have a balance of kind of having some sense of freedom as well. So right. yes, there's no doubt about it. But I think, you know, physicians in general often work in very, very difficult areas, whether it's palliative care, whether it's physical trauma, etc. So I think we bank on one another to, to talk to other people who understand it.
0: What advice do you have for family doctors and other physicians, Um, how should they proceed when they encounter uh, the disclosure of a sexual assault from a patient?
1: some of the reasons why I think patients don't disclose is because we don't encourage disclosure as a profession sometimes, right? Physicians are too uncertain about how to handle the disclosure. What are they going to do about it if they find it out, right? You know, you're looking after someone with a broken arm, you know, as a woman, you know, my first question is how did that arm, did it did it really happen because she fell down the stairs or did it happen because someone threw her against a wall, you know, or, or twisted her arm? And but sometimes that question doesn't get asked because we're, it's difficult to ask it. You know, people sense that, well, you know, it's time consuming. And if I do get an answer, what am I going to do with it? Right. And, and I think really trying to teach people about trauma informed care is to encourage professionals to realize that it doesn't take long to ask that question. And there are lots of resources. You don't have to be an expert in trauma and how to handle sexual assault and domestic violence. You just need to ask the question, get the honest response and then reach out to our program and we will travel to wherever you are and uh and and talk with that woman and arrange follow-up and bring her back to our center if necessary right then and there
0: well thank you dr mcnair for your time today and the work of yourself and your colleagues and i should emphasize again if you or someone you care for has experienced sexual violence and you want to reach out, you can call St. Joseph's at, and the number again, 519-646-6100, extension 64224. Although I imagine if you simply mention that you want to reach the Regional Sexual Assault and Treatment Centre, they can connect you there. Dr. McNair, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks Podcast. Thanks for joining us, and join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital health care. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London, or visit sjhclondononca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy.